Don? Yes. Do you want to hear a ghost story? Do I? Golly gee. A young trainer strolls into Goldenrod City in the Johto region, thinking that they're going to walk into their next gym badge because it's the normal gym. What possible creature could prevent them from attaining their success in the normal gym? When the gym leader throws out a pink monstrosity of milk tank that proceeds to roll out and milk drink all over this poor trainer until they lose repeatedly for the foreseeable future. That's the cry of the fearsome beast you're describing. That is pure nightmare fuel. Well, if our eagle-eyed listeners can identify that noise, that would be the cry of the mill tank. Most fearsome, rolling out and milk drinking creature on this planet. That has to be one of the worst gym fights, right? Oh man, it's brutal. Because at that point, you also don't have anything that can hit it for super effective. Because there's like no. I feel like. You might be able to find like a Machop or like a Nidoran that has double kick, but other than that, I think you're like totally out of luck. And I feel like even if you have either of those, I still feel like Miltank's gonna mess you up. It's gonna. I, I still feel like Whitney and her Miltank is like that's like peak gym frustration to me. Maybe I was just a young kid who didn't know how to fight properly, but <laughs> you just like you get it low and then it takes a sip of that moo moo milk and it comes right back up. It also has like doesn't it also have body slam too? Stomp sounds right. It's stomp, milk drink, attract, and roll out. That's it. Not defense curl. I believe in Heart Gold Soul Silver, it now has Scrappy as well. So your Ghastly is also not safe. And Lumberry, so you can't put it to sleep. It is just the worst. So that's our, our tie-in for our spooky month. We are talking about Miltank and cows and all things ruminants. In this episode, we'll get into that later. We have a very interesting guest I think you all are going to enjoy hearing from. Uh, so with all that being said, Don, I think we should just, just get it started. Let's go right into it. All right, so we are going to start with some science news. Don, you have a freaky beetle. Yes, so this is a critter I'd heard about a while ago, and I went, oh, that's neat, and then I forgot it existed. It is the Diabolical Ironclad Beetle. It's a great name. It's a beetle. It does look pretty diabolical, in my opinion. And they're unique because their exoskeleton is incredibly, incredibly tough, and it's been known for a long time. They can uh, basically, like, survive getting ran over by a car. Wow. It was uh, some scientists at the University of California, Irvine, um, and some compression experiments, they found that the beetle could withstand around 39,000 times its own body weight, which would be like you putting 40 M1 Abrams tanks on your shoulder. I can't do that. No, um, I would be very impressed. I, I can bar- I can barely do one, personally. I'd like, two is my limit. Yeah, that's impressive. You don't want to stretch. You got to stretch first, though. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. If I stretch right, I get, like, three. Yeah, so it was, it's been well known to the point where um, insect collectors, they can't use the normal pin when they're, like, mounting the beetle. Because the steel pin will bend and break. Um, so they actually have used a little teeny drill to drill through the beetle to put it on their, like, collection board. That's like the scene in every superhero movie when they, like, try to, like, do an IV or something. And it, like, bends on their skin. And they're like, we can't do it! Yes, but it sounds like for a long time, basically everyone, okay, this beetle's, like, hella strong. And just kind of went neat and then put it over there. And then they did some... So there seems to be there's two things that act together 
And um, I think I sent you the article. It's worth looking at the pictures because it's almost hard to describe. But the upper and lower halves of the exoskeleton fit together like a clamshell. But they have this sort of like zipper jigsaw seams where they join together. That It fits together. Like, it looks like a zipper almost. They're, they're shaped around the beetle's body. Like closest to the vital organs, the ridges are like highly interconnected. So they're stiff and resist bending. But towards the back of the beetle, they're not as intricate. And they are like sort of absorb the compression onto like a safe crumple zone. And then within that, there's a, a joint that is held together by like a glue type protein. And then when part of the squashing happens, tiny cracks form in the glue that help more like distribute and spread out the load. And then those cracks are healable. So the beetle can absorb the impacts and then heal back up. Interesting. Interesting. So I think it would be a really cool Pokemon. And you don't even have to change the name. Yeah, it's a sweet name. The diabolical ironclad beetle has appeared. Give us another bug steel. I mean, we only have like two of them. I don't know the logistics, but I would assume that they're weak to fire in real life as well. So I think it's accurate. <laughs> I think that's a safe bet. Uh, but Fortress and Durant need some comfort. Oh, and so never mind. There's actually more. There's This would be the fifth one, right? Scissor. Durant, Fortress, and um, Scavalier. Oh, yeah. Oh, I guess that is a pretty... There's more steel bugs than I thought. I I actually... You said the two I wasn't thinking of. I thought about Scissor and a Scavalier, and you thought of the other other two. I just know Durant because I hate Hustle. I love Durant. (laughs) I mean, that's cool, but it's also... I'm glad it's like the size of a beetle because otherwise that'd be terrifying. Yeah, I I think they are like herbivores. Yeah, but if it was bigger, it could still squish me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so this next one, Don, we both kind of stumbled across this story, but it appears that someone has attempted to use science to determine the scariest movie of all time. Yes, we discussed this. I personally don't know how I feel about it. Do you want to break it down? Yes. So I think it's an interesting idea for the study. Basically, they took participants, hooked them up to some heart rate monitors, had them watch 120 hours worth of of horror films, the list that they curated through community submissions and monitored the heart rates through the course of the movies and then ranked them based on like average heart rate, which I, again, I like the idea of it. My fundamental problem is that older movies, like they did the exorcist, they don't have the same resonance as they did when they first came out because those movies are so popular and so ingrained in like society that you're kind of numb to a lot of the scares because you've seen them parodied. You've seen them pop up before, you know, it's like, yeah, it's like found footage movies now are almost a joke. A lot of the time and the time Blair, Witch was insane. Or it's like matrix and bullet time. Like it's, you've seen it so much nowadays that it's, it's a cliche, but like back then it was like, Whoa. So I have a little bit of an issue pairing modern movies with older movies. And I think that that holds a little weight because if you look at the list, I don't think in the top 10 there was any movie that was older than like 2008. Were those exorcists and stuff even in the top 10 or were they? They were not. They were not. Okay. Starting 10 to 1, what they found was The Visit, The Descent, The Babadook, The Conjuring 2, It Follows, Paranormal Activity, Hereditary, The Conjuring, Insidious, and then the number one was Sinister. So, yeah. I mean, those are all, like, don't get me wrong, those are all scary movies, but like, I don't think you can't convince me that at the like if you take time of release that any of those movies were viewed as as scary as The Exorcist when it was released. Yeah, I I agree with you on that. I personally did not find The Conjuring two that scary. Neither did I. Well, and and it gets back to the whole 
argue, the discussion that we had, I think we did it in the Patreon segment last time, but if a horror movie doesn't scare you, is it a bad movie? Which I don't think is the case. I think, you know, I don't think it needs to scare you to be good. The other issue I have with the study, Don, is if they're measuring heart rates, by nature, jump scares are gonna, like, spike heart rates. Yeah, or as opposed to stuff that's just, like, steady dread. Like, like, hereditary. Yeah. And so, you know, those constantly spiked heart rates are gonna affect the average beats per minute. So, again, it was, if I were doing the study and I had unlimited funds and endless time, what I would do is I would take, I would do it every year with the movies that came out that year. That would be... A really interesting sort of breakdown, actually. And then, like, only share it in, like, 25 years. You can even go back and do horror movies by, like, do, like, the horror movies from, like, the 1980s, you know? Just to get kind of, like, a snippet of the rankings in that time. It's not going to be the same for obvious reasons. But that would be the way that I would do it if money and time weren't an issue. Yeah, that would be cool to see it even just by decade if you want to go a little wider with it and have it through each decade. I thought, again, a fun story... A fun little, uh, you know, fun research topic for the month of October and spookiness. All right. Well, let's keep this show rolling and let's dive into the Pokemon news. Um, yeah. So we are, as of well, this recording, we are one day away from Crown Tundra starting. I mean, we're technically like as of this recording, we're like two hours away. That's true. Yes. Yeah, so we're very close to Crown Tundra. I'm very excited about it. How do you feel about it? I am very pumped. I'm pumped to get it out. I'm also pumped because it means that if, you know, tradition holds, we're a year away from a new game. That's true. Which seems like kind of kind of rude to say because, like, all the content's not out for this game yet. Granted, it's probably going to be, like, a Let's Go game, you know? I would be so okay with Let's Go Johto, honestly. Yeah, I, I would be good with that. I would be good with that. I'd be good with a Diamond and Pearl one, too, because that was... Basically, like, my games as a kid is I did I did Red and Blue, I did Gold and Silver, I skipped Gen 3, and then I did Diamond Pearl. So I would be into a Diamond Pearl Redux. Speaking of Redux and all that, they showed us it exists. Where is Pokemon Snap? <laughs> it's coming, man. It's coming. You get, the, you get the teaser, and then you wait 13 months. Forever. And, and then they'll get you some more news. No, I, I'm excited to get more info on that. I get, like, I'm just excited for more games. Like, this, like Sword and Shield have been, are, are very fun, and I'm having a lot of fun, especially with you teaching me how to appropriately battle, and not just me fudging my way through it. Uh, yeah, well, hopefully we'll continue on. Players Cup 2 will be with the new Crown Tundra Pokemon, so it'll be really fun to see how that all shakes out. That'll be interesting. But before we get to that, we actually have some Pokemon Go news. Hit me with it. Because there's always some update with what's going on in there. So we have a couple new releases coming out as they tease today. Galarian Ponyta, Yamask, and Runerigus. And they cryptically tweeted out a photo of a leak. So that makes me think that Surfetched is going to be available because Galarian Farfetch'd is already available. Yeah, he's been in there for a while. I forgot he was in it, and I have some of you. So if, uh, we're getting definitely the first two. I'm guessing, I haven't seen a confirmation of Surfetch, but I'm guessing that's what their tweets are meaning. But we have a ghost event coming up for the month of October, which I am excited about solely because we are getting costumed Pokemon that can actually be battle-relevant. Which is, we have a Sableye wearing a Litwick hat, and I'm guessing this is a Gengar that's dressed up, dressing up as a Banette. Fun. 
usually when you get them, like I've got a shiny Charmander wearing a Pikachu hat, and that's pretty useless. You know? It's cute though. It's cute, but like I use Gengar in my Ultra League team, and so having one that's dressed up in a costume would be awesome. Or like a, a Sableye with his little hat in Great League. I think that would be cool too. I like that. Oh, and with the Ghost event, they are also releasing Mega Gengar. Ooh, fun. But they are doing the Halloween Cup. Which is a Great League limited battle arena from the 26th of October through the 3rd of November that limits you to only using Poison, Ghost, Bug, Dark, and Fairy types. Interesting. And so I'm excited to try that out, mostly because I loved using Dark types in Great League. So I've got my team all set, and I think it's going to be good fun. Yeah, I'm going to have to ask you a lot about um, the PvP scene after this uh probably coming up this week so i'm gonna start figuring some more about about that out you've given me a lot in the vgc so i can try to help you out in pokemon go but we have a wonderful guest who is waiting for us to start so i think we should just dive right into the topic don let's go right to it all right don we are joined by a very special guest today we have jim vineyard from your state of florida to come and talk to us today howdy jim hi how are you guys oh we're doing good appreciate you making some time to come talk to us and our listeners yeah my pleasure jim just we'll just kind of dive right into it why don't you introduce yourself give some background uh to the listeners sure so i am a current phd student at the university of florida uh, I study ruminant nutrition, and I came here from, I'm originally from Indiana, where I did my bachelor's at Purdue, uh, did my master's out at University of Idaho, working with beef cattle and feeding some alternative forages, uh, as well as some byproduct feeds, uh, came here to the great state of Florida, where now my research focuses primarily on the enzymatic digestion in cattle, primarily dairy cattle looking both at lipids and fiber digestion in dairy cattle, but also kind of just ruminants in general. It wouldn't be an episode of the Science of Pokemon without at least two people from Florida talking on it. <laughs> it, has, it's ha- it has happened like, well, I mean, we did have Lucas who also lived in Florida, to be fair. Yeah. Out of, uh, so you kind of gave us a, a specific view of the work that your lab is focused on. If you were explaining it to like an elevator pitch style to someone on the street, How would you describe the work that your lab is looking at? So our lab primarily focuses on fermentation. Everybody hears that cattle have four stomachs. That's in part true, but it's actually, everybody thinks F-O-U-R, but it's F-O-R-E stomachs. Oh, that is a fact I never thought about really. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's actually chambers of the stomach that come before the true stomach. And so The first two chambers, the reticulum and the rumen, is where a lot of fermentation of fibrous feeds like grasses are going to occur. And so my lab focuses primarily on those first two chambers and the fermentation that occurs therein. And we actually have an in vitro system, which means in the lab, that we can actually replicate the fermentation that occurs in the rumen in a glass jar. We just basically need contents from a donor animal's rumen, and then we can incubate those with um, an artificial saliva and feeding these jars daily and actually replicate very similarly what's going to happen in the animal in terms of digestion. And what advantages does that 
setup your lab has with the in vitro with the the glass fermentation so with that we kind of have two two real big benefits that come from those it's a very controlled environment we only need animals for a very brief amount of time for this and that's just to get the like contents of their stomach that we then use in the lab so there's a lot fewer variables that we can't control we can then take those and all we need to run any study that we do in the lab in that system all we need is two cows four different times per study compared to say the uh, another trial we have going that has uh 60 cows that we're using for three months so we can do studies in a much shorter period of time with much much fewer animals and much less use of those animals and that is kind of the way that animal research is going we really kind of follow the reduce reuse recycle method in animal research reduce the number of animals we use reuse any animals if possible and then recycle all of our dairy cattle we pretty much recycle because it's they live on a functional dairy. And then the other benefit that we have, well, I guess there's three benefits really to our lab. With the in vitro method, it's much, much cheaper to do any study that we run in those to get very preliminary results for any, we do a lot of product testing for companies, but then we can also push super physiological levels of things that we couldn't necessarily do in a live animal for animal welfare concerns. Uh, so like there was one study we did looking at toxins and their effect on digestion. And so we could dose our, we call them fermenters. We could dose our fermenters with these toxins that we can't do in a, in a functional animal for obvious reasons, but we can do that in a glass jar without any kind of welfare concern at all and really study what happens. So what you're telling me is a lot of advantages. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing we really can't do is look at absorption of nutrients and like production of meat or milk. So how unique is that setup in the industry? There's probably around 10 of them around the world. So it's relatively unique. And of all those 10, not all of them are functional anymore. So what is the ultimate goal of your lab? What are you all hoping to achieve from your work? Our work is really aimed at improving animal production. We really only work with cattle in our lab. So really increasing production of milk or meat while maintaining or improving health of the animal. And we kind of meet that goal by we work with a lot of companies to test a lot of different products all across the spectrum of nutrients. We've done carbohydrate studies, protein studies, lipid studies, vitamins, kind of done it all to look at improving production, improving animal health, and doing so with a reduced use of animals. Because a lot of these companies come in with new products and they want to test them with us first. One, because it's a smaller investment for them, but also two, if they don't get results in our system, a lot of times they can go back to the drawing board, try to figure out what went wrong, and then try it again without needing to spend a ton of money on a bunch of animals for a long period of time. So one of the words that you've used multiple times, and I just want to make sure we explain it uh, for anyone who might not know, is we keep hearing the word rumen and ruminant. Uh, can you explain what is a ruminant? 
So a ruminant is any animal that has the this four-chambered stomach. And the four chambers of this stomach are the reticulum, which is the first compartment, um, which helps participate in the fermentation of fibrous feeds. So humans don't really have the ability to break down cellulose and technically neither do ruminants, but the microbes that live in their reticulum and then the rumen, the compartment we'll talk about next, they have the ability to break down cellulose. So if the microbes can break that down, that energy can then be used and they break that down and they ferment it into what are called volatile fatty acids. And those are just short chain fatty acids that the ruminant animal can use for energy. We call it the energy currency in cattle is volatile fatty acids, whereas in humans or pigs, it's glucose. And then that rumen functions to ferment those feeds and then constantly mix them. And they have to meet a certain size of particle to pass onto the next chamber. And in order to do that, a cow will actually regurgitate their feed. Chewing the cud, right? Exactly, exactly. So when you hear the phrase chewing the cud, that's the cow actually chewing vomited and burped up feed in their mouth to break it down into smaller particles so that it can ferment faster and move on to the next section. And that's the omasum. And the omasum has these large, large leaves of tissue that function to pull water out of um, the feed so that it doesn't dilute out the acid that is in the next chamber, which is the abomasum, which is the true stomach. And that's the glandular acidic stomach, like what we have. And then from there on, ruminants are pretty much the same as any other animal. What's a typical digestion time? Like how long does this process take from like start to finish? So it can take a day, two days. It really depends on a factor of digestibility, like how fast um, those part those large particles. So if you think about like long blades of grass, um, how quickly those can be fermented and broken down into smaller particles. Um, because to go from the rumen to the omasum, uh, those particles need to be about less than two centimeters in length um, to be able to actually pass into the omasum because it's just a very, very small um, opening that they go to. And then um, it also has to, it, there, it's a factor of how much that animal is eating. So if you think about like physically pushing the food through, like shoving new food in on top of it, um, that'll increase the rate of passage through the digestive system because there's almost like more force behind it. So what typically goes into a ruminant's diet? So it depends on the ruminant and the diets are... Let's focus on your lab and dairy cattle. Sure. So in dairy cattle, we feed, usually it's like 50-50 what we call forage. So any kind of like grass-like food. So that could be things like hay. We produce what's called silage, which is basically fermented plants. Kind of doing a little bit of some pre-work on that food. Exactly. Exactly. And then the concentrate is things like corn grain or soybean meal, things that they're a little bit more energy dense or protein dense and we kind of use pretty much those four things but in 
a wild ruminant or a grazing beef cow, it's really pretty much just grass. You get some of your deer or goats and they'll eat like leaves and berries and twigs and stuff, but it's mostly grass. That makes a lot of sense. I was going to ask about that. So why, why, what kind of impact does the nutrition that they have have for us? We live in an era, an era in which the population of the earth is growing at an incredible rate, but the earth isn't getting any bigger. We're not really gaining any land. We're actually losing land to development. And so we need to feed a population that's growing and growing and growing with the same amount of land. So when it comes to feeding dairy cattle, we are all about efficiency. So if you can feed that animal less feed, but produce more milk, that's going to benefit, you know, your farmer, your grocery store, the consumer that's buying milk, that's going to benefit everybody because the less cost that goes into producing the same or more milk, the better, because we, in the past 50 years, what we used to be able to produce milk wise with three cows, we can now produce with two. Is that mainly like a diet sort of thing? Or is that just better genetics from like breeding or a combination? It's a combination of both. We've selected cows that have better milk production traits, but it's also a lot of nutrition as well. If you were to compare a dairy cow from say New Zealand, where they don't grow a lot of corn or soybeans or barley or canola, those cows are going to produce less milk on average than a cow in the United States would because those cows are really fed just grass. Right. And our cows are fed a combination of different things. I have one last question for you. Mm -hmm. I was perusing your lab's website. And one of the things that jumped out to me was the goal to minimize environmental impact. Sure. And so I was wondering if you could go into just how does the work that your lab is doing, how could it ultimately impact that area? How does the nutrition of the feed impact the environment? In terms of animal impact on the environment, we kind of think in two fields, and that is nitrogen runoff and methane production. So nitrogen, your nitrogen runoff is going to be coming in the feces and the urine. And so in order to reduce and minimize the amount of nitrogen these animals are putting off, we need to feed them a more precise protein amount. We've done a lot of investigation looking at different treatments of protein sources to change digestibilities because when it comes to nitrogen, that nitrogen is found in amino acids. And so we have to balance our rations so that we're not putting in a bunch of extra amino acids that aren't going to get used. So we balance our diets for amino acids so that those, that those are not just digested and broken down into nitrogen and then excreted. And then in terms of methane, a lot of people think methane comes from cow farts and it actually comes from cow burps. Oh, how about that? The other end. Yeah. Ruminant nutrition is pretty much all just burps and poop. And so methane is actually a waste product in the rumen. It's a byproduct of fermentation. So we have done studies in ruminant nutrition to look at ways to mitigate methane. And one of the things we've looked at is more looking at easily digested carbohydrates um, that are going to break down more into 
one of the three volatile fatty acids is propionate, and it's a three-carbon molecule, and that one produces the least amount of waste in terms of methane. And we have also looked at things like adding lipids to diets. Lipids come in saturated and unsaturated forms, and the unsaturated forms are your things like canola oil, corn oil, um, things that are liquid at room temperature, and those can actually take on those hydrogens and become more saturated. And so if those hydrogens aren't present in the rumen environment, they can't find carbon and then be expelled as methane. So we kind of look in terms of things like that to kind of mitigate environmental impacts of cattle. Well, it sounds like your lab is tackling a lot of different things. We have our toes in a lot of different areas right now, and those are just a couple of them. So, well, This has all been very interesting, but I think it's time we got to the main event, which is the Pokemon. Absolutely. So we can't have an episode of this topic and not talk about Miltank. Okay, the second bovine Pokemon introduced in the game. Miltank debuted in Gold and Silver and has been in every game since, except for the Let's Go series. Let's take a moment real quick, though. Have a moment of silence for all of our teams that were manhandled by Whitney's milk take when we were young. The terror that was roll out and milk drink. But uh, given that Miltank is the milk cow Pokemon, it says that Miltank can produce five gallons of milk a day. And I was curious how that compares with real cows. Ooh, that's a good one. Yeah, so that is a lot less. So cows are usually producing closer to 15 to 20 gallons of milk per day, at least in the United States, where we have selectively bred cattle and are feeding really high-quality diets. That's going to be a little less in places across the pond because they are primarily grass-based systems. So there's a lot less... A lot lower digestibility diet, a lot less rapidly fermentable carbohydrates that are going to kind of enable that huge milk production. But there's still probably around like 10 gallons of milk per day. Wow, that's more than I would have thought. I think is that that might be one of the few times that like the real world animal outshines the Pokemon. I think so. But if you look at Miltank's size... It's a lot, lot smaller than, uh, say, the the Holstein that it's based off of. Dairy cattle are generally, at least in the United States, are usually single-purpose breeds like Holsteins, Brown Swiss, and Jerseys. Um, Holsteins are what you typically think of when somebody says cow, that black and white with the big udder. They are the breed that produces the most, we always say, pounds of milk per day. You have other breeds like Brown Swiss that maybe we could get if we ever get like an Alpine European version based game, do a regional mill tank. That'd be cool. They're known for a higher milk fat content. So a lot of people that produce ice cream or cheese or butter from their cows, they're going to have a few of those in their herd to increase the milk fat content. Does, does mill tank get uh, thick fat, Don? Um, yes. I said that with confidence and I'm not a hundred percent, but I think it does. Give me one second. Yeah, it does. Okay, I thought it yeah. did. It's it's thick fat, scrappy, and sap sipper. I mean, I understand, and like my grandparents had cows, so like I know they can move. It's it's always faster than I think it is though, and it's gotten me into trouble before. I have found that at least in dairy, you never want to chase a cow because they're always going to outrun you. Yeah, 
That's a, a, a good theme for animals is they're faster than you think. That's true. Is it they're faster than they than we think or we're slower than we think? A little bit of both, probably. One other interesting bit in the decks that I was curious about is it says that Miltank's uh, nutritional quality of the milk is affected by its, essentially its feed, which we've gone into a lot. But it also says that the seasonality affects the flavor of the milk. And so I was wondering if there is any crossover with the real world with that. As far as I know... There's no impacts of like season or day length or temperature on milk flavor. Cows will generally produce less milk when it's hotter out and more milk when it's cold. But that is mostly a factor of uh, feed consumption. When it's hot out, they don't want to eat as much because fermentation is a very hot process. So if they eat less, they ferment less, and then there's less heat produced. And then in the winter, they'll eat a lot more to actually produce more heat and help them stay warm. That makes a lot of sense. Is there Are there any other things about Miltank that you want to touch on, Jim? I think that's really it. They pretty much just took a cow and made it have a little bit more personality and then put it in the game and had it stand up right. They are really small, though, compared to a real cow. Like Now that you mentioned I had to go back and look at like the the height and all that it's like three foot 11 75 kilos or 166 pounds what's and so what's the average size of, of a real cow a large holstein is going to be between 1500 and like 1800 pounds so like 10 times heavier yeah mill tank is really really small and also i know it was made rotund probably to be more adorable but your dairy cows are generally considered like endurance athletes of the bovine world so they're usually have a very lean appearance like a runner would well they do all that walking for the food Mm -hmm. also you left out that milk tank is pink so clearly it produces strawberry milk oh that's a good point that's true and then the shiny is blueberry there we go blueberry milk the next big thing well we brought up the move earlier when talking about whitney but milk tank has the move Milk Drink, which is only learned by one other family of Pokemon. Don, do you care to enlighten us? Oh, wait, who does that? I mean, is it, um, who else learns it? I'm blanking on it. It is, it's another ruminant. It's Skidoo and Go-Goat. That's, okay, yes. That's it, I've actually never had goat milk. I've enjoyed some good goat cheese. I've, yeah, I've never had, I've never had goat milk either, but I have had goat cheese. Goat milk is really good in coffee. Interesting. Huh, okay, I'm going to keep that in mind. Yeah. Well, Go-Goat really has only been in two games, uh, introduced in X and Y, and then also is in Omega Ruby and Alpha Sapphire. And its deck entries in both are exactly the same. So there's not a lot to really go into, like, comping them. But one of the interesting things that I saw is that, that it said that Skidoo was one of the earliest Pokemon to live in harmony with the humans. And looking at human history, this actually lines up with what is believed of early humans and that goats were one of the earliest domesticated animals by humans around 10,000 years ago. Do either of you have thoughts about why goats and herbivores like them would make that easy transition early on? I'm going to take a shot in the dark because I'm not even looking at the show notes. The full freestyle. I'm going to say partially um, they already have the herding instinct. So they probably are pretty accepting of things that kind of just keep them as a cluster. And um, having early like agriculture plant sort of stuff, I feel like would be beneficial. And I know goats kind of eat anything. So just having them on the fringes would be easy. Jim, do you do you know or have a, have a guess? I would think it's kind of along the lines of goats and small animals 
or small ruminant animals of that type are just incredibly gregarious and they are probably they'll eat like don said just about anything and so they'd probably be relatively easy to keep in like say like a nomadic lifestyle where there may be food there may not be yeah the the answer i kept coming back to was food source because it they didn't involve you didn't have to hunt for them there was no special crop that you had to grow for them it, they were basically just eating the grass so that that kind of made it a, an easy transition uh, into domesticated life with humans now you had said that that cows produce up to like 20 gallons of milk a day goats only do like one gallon of milk a day right yeah it's a lot less and like your really 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 good goats are like around 10 pounds of milk so a little bit more than a gallon uh if you had to pick between the two which animal milk do you think is consumed more in the world cows or goats goats i feel like i mean cows are big here but i think globally there's a lot of goats it is it is goats a reasoning that i found which makes a lot of sense is in terms of in keeping them, they take up a lot less space than a cow. So they're a little bit easier to kind of work into into a household. And if you think about it, a gallon of milk for a family, that's a good source of milk. But one, some of the numbers I found that was kind of astounding is India is the largest producer of milk overall and goat milk. In 2013, they produced 5 million metric tons of goat milk, which was almost double what the second highest country was. And then in 2018... India produced 22% of the world's production of milk. Yeah, it's over It's over uh, double the amount the United States produced in the same year. One of the other kind of up-and-coming goat uses in the United States is people will actually use them as lawnmowers. They do a pretty good job uh, unless you have like nice landscaping and then they just eat everything. Goats actually made national headlines a few years ago in Boise, Idaho. Somebody had rented a herd of goats and not done a great job of securing them into wherever they were having them clear brush. And they actually got out and were wandering through a Boise suburb eating people's landscaping. Oh, no. Speaking of goat and... um. Aren't goats uh, like your classic goat? Aren't they like invasive in Hawaii? I think so. I think people brought them there for food and then they, they're something that can kind of turn feral relatively easy because um, they're super hardy. I could see that, yeah. Well, the I actually did a story a couple years ago on solar farms and sheep mm-hmm. and, and how the same kind of idea using them as lawnmowers, but they didn't want to use goats because goats climb everything. And that's what you don't want on solar panels. Right. Yeah, that would be very unideal, I feel like. Jim, do you have any other ruminants in the Pokedex you want to touch on? Uh, I think one of the ones that's probably uh, surprising to people is giraffe rig. Mm. Yeah, we were talking about this earlier and I didn't even think about it. Yeah, giraffes are the world's largest ruminant. And so they do the exact same thing as a cow does, just on a lot taller scale. So they still do the chewing of the cud where they have to regurgitate feed. But instead of that having to travel like a foot and a half up the esophagus, it has to go all the way up the giraffe's neck to be able to do the same thing. That's impressive. Do cows also have the the prehensile tongue? Uh, Yes. I had a cow that I used to work with that if you weren't giving her attention... 
she would wrap her tongue around your arm and pull it into her mouth and begin chewing. <laughs> That's not very nice. My, uh, oh, I've got a cow, a cow licking story, actually, now that you mentioned that. My, uh, when I was younger, I would help my grandpa out on his farm up in South Georgia. He had, um, not, he probably had like 50 cows or so. Um, and they were all, I don't remember the breed, but they were like meat cows and they were like, they were like jet black for the most part. Like I, there, he had this old, old creepy barn way out in the middle of nowhere in like the woods, basically. And you have to go there. I would go there and help out and stuff. And the cows were like super friendly. And if you were sweaty, they would try to lick you guys for the salt. And I just remember being out there. I was 12 years old by myself in the pitch black and something just licks the back of my neck. And I've never been more afraid in my entire life. Giant tongue going down the back of your neck without you knowing what it is. Yeah, I was I was very upset. Oh no, oh no. Well, before we start wrapping up, Don, do you have any any mons you want to touch on? I have a last minute question for you, and then I'll give my own thought as well. Um, if there was a particular ruminant you would like to add to the game, which one? Oh, that's a good question. Or it could even be like a specific breed of yeah. like cow or sheep that's not in the game as well. It doesn't just have to be like a deer. So I think probably the like the two that I would really want to see in the game would be uh, moose Pokemon. Ooh, that'd be good. Oh, we don't have a moose. And you could have it be kind of like grass ghost or grass water because they spend a lot of time in the water, but they're also like kind of spooky yeah we i had a friend when i lived in northern idaho uh she was out taking her trash out and she tossed it in the dumpster and closed the lid and there was just a moose behind the dumpster just staring at her that had snuck up i've heard that they do that creepy look yeah they're real creepy we always underestimate how big moose are yes they are huge yes oh i just we actually all forgot about a giant other ruminant pokemon what's that Xerneas. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The the legendary ruminant. Yeah, he's like, I mean, I feel like he's probably like an Irish elk or like an extinct big old deer type critter. Yeah, yeah. I could definitely see the like the Irish elk or like the white stag. Jim, you had one other one that you were going to add too. Oh, yeah. I think a, uh, and we do kind of have a sheep Pokemon already, but I think a bighorn sheep. Yes, hell yeah. I'm so on board for that would be really cool you could have it be rock type and i i think they could definitely do some really cool stuff with that it's move pool's already preset you got bounce you got head smash and then you got um uh, my one i think it's already in the i mean i could talk about a bunch of different type of deer because i'm really into deer and stuff but um i do think a uh i think it's called a gulabi it's like the goat that's like it's baby it's like when it's little it's like really cute and it looks like it could be a real life fairy type and then when it grows up it looks like one of the things from dark souls Oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yes. You should, um, Chris, you should Google Gulabi goat. <laughs> and the baby looks like it's a fairy type. And the adult, it looks like the guy who's like, who has rung the bell of awakening in uh, Dark Souls. The customary part of the episode where Don says, Chris, Google this. And I say, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> to Google it. The babies are so cute. Also, they're they're a giant freaking they're, Yeah, they're huge. Giant. It's very long. Yeah, it doesn't like it screams like fairy type as a little one, and then something else when it's big. Yeah, I could see that. I definitely could see that. Well, I guess at this point, unless you all have anything else to note, I think we can start pushing to the wrap up. Yeah, I think I'm good. (laughs) 
Well, uh, Jim, we really appreciate your time today. Thank you for coming uh, and talking to us, teaching us about your work, teaching us about ruminants and and all the incredible things that happen with them and their four F-O-R-E stomachs. That's probably the biggest revelation that we've had in this episode. Yeah, that's it's a life-changing thing. I'm going to ruminate on that one for a while. And then, and then burp it up and chew it some more. Yes. But uh, Jim, if people want to learn more about uh, the, your lab and, and the work that you all are doing, where can they find that? Sure. So we have a lab website, um, and that's it's at, and that's fasciola, f a c i o l a dot com, uh, and that's our lab website. Um, and you can learn about all the projects we were going on, all the different folks that work in my lab. My contact information is there as well. If you have any questions about ruminants, about cattle, about grad school, anything. And then you can also find me on Twitter at James underscore Vineyard, V-I-N-Y-A-R-D. And then I am also on Instagram at jvineyard15. I, I mean, if you've got more questions, Jim has a ton of knowledge. So hit him up. He, he's helped me learn a lot about uh, about the work that they're doing. So again, we really appreciate you, Jim, and we appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you for coming out. This has been really cool. And yeah. also, thank you listeners again for, uh, for giving us your time. Thank you for coming back. We asked if you could please leave a review in your favorite podcasting app. It helps others find the show. So we appreciate you, Jim. Thanks again. My I think pleasure. that about does it. Bye, everyone.